If you are sick of oppressive religious systems, but are not willing to let go of faith altogether, this podcast is for you. In this show, we hear from inspirational people tackling real issues of faith that actually matter in this world. Welcome to Jesus Never Ran. The church is wrong to argue that the Bible justifies any sort of discrimination, oppression, marginalization of those who are not straight. Well, the reason why you ain't got no black folks in your congregation is because we don't show up to places where we're not welcome, and we know we're not welcome based off the conversations you demand that we don't have because of the questions you insist on us not asking because of the answers you don't want to live. And the idea that the best being in the universe can't come up with a better solution to the problems of the universe than to torture people forever, eternally. You just start thinking, if that's as good as God is, this is a pretty depressing universe. Hey, before we get going, a couple of words from our sponsors. Rise Nutrition. You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. That's Rise with a Z. And they're all about a healthier, happier life. So let their wellness coaches give you the personal support to help you achieve your wellness goals. After all, that is their mission. And here's the thing, just for Jesus Never Ran listeners, if you go to their Facebook page, you can message them and get a free wellness profile. That's a 20-minute phone conversation, absolutely free for Jesus Never Ran listeners. So check them out today. Also, Infinity Beverages at www.infinitybeverages.com. They will deliver anything you need right to your door. And don't forget that Thursday is buy one, get one for club members if you're in the Eau Claire, Wisconsin area. That's Infinity Beverages at www.infinitybeverages.com. So one thing we haven't talked about yet at Jesus Never Ran is this pandemic that we're all in the midst of. So I was thinking, who could we possibly get to talk about the worldwide pandemic? And it just so happens that a theologian by the name of N.T. Wright recently wrote a book called God and the Pandemic. And I thought, would it be possible to get a world-renowned theologian from Oxford, England on Jesus Never Ran? And I thought, not a chance in the world. So I found him, I emailed him. Within 10 minutes of my email, he responded to me and he said, yes, let's talk about the pandemic. And also I've got a new book coming out. So let's talk about broken signposts as well. So ladies and gentlemen, we just have the greatest treat in the world here. We get to spend some time with New Testament theologian from Oxford, England, N.T. Wright, not just this week, but next week as well. I've been studying the Bible all my life and trying to put it into practice and teach people about it and that's taken me in and out of the university world and in and out of the church world and so I've had a rich and varied um, life the last 50 years or so. My poor long-suffering wife has coped with that and we have four children and now five grandchildren and we're expecting our sixth um, around Christmas or New Year. Um, so life has not stopped being full and a bit frantic. And at the moment, because of these two recent books, um, everyone seems to want to interview me. And whereas before the publishers would send me on a book tour where I'd get on a plane and go and stay in a nice hotel and then have a meeting, now it's all done on Zoom. So I can do far too many of them. And uh, that's, that's why I'm talking to you right now. But I'm glad to be with you. Well, thanks again for being a part of this podcast. It absolutely means the world to me. Now, you wrote a book 
called God and the Pandemic. So we're going to talk about that today. And based on the fact that this pandemic is still pretty new, it's something that has started ravishing our world really in 2020. And you have managed to write about it and publish a book in time for it still to be relevant to us. So how did that all come about and how did you decide to write this book? And then I guess, how did you get it out so quickly so we could actually have something meaningful and helpful in our hands today? It, it was a funny thing. About a year ago, I did an article for Time magazine at the request of one of the editors about a previous book that I'd written, um, The New Testament in Its World. And uh, I enjoyed working on that article with that editor. And then when the pandemic began, that editor uh, called me up and said, could you write us just a short piece, maybe 800 words on what Christianity might have to say about the pandemic? And she told me that in America, uh, a lot of people were saying things like, this is God punishing America for particular sins, or this is God saying uh, the uh, timetable of the end has now begun, and any minute now it'll be the rapture or whatever, and the various other reactions as well. So I thought, well, um, neither of those are actually biblical, and uh, I could just at least say in 800 words why they're not biblical and that that's not the way to approach it. Now, um, the uh, the author of an article for Time magazine doesn't usually get to write the headline, and Time magazine, somebody in the sub-editor's department put a headline on saying, Christianity doesn't have the answer and it's not supposed to. And that, of course, was like a red rag to various bulls who went charging off and I got emails saying, uh, N.T. Wright, don't you read your Bible? Don't, don't you know that in the book of Amos, when something like this happens, it's because of specific sins and blah, 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 blah. And so I, I responded to a few people like that. But then a friend of mine who runs a big church in, in uh, downtown Manhattan um, asked if I would do an online lecture for his congregation about the whole thing. And so I took that and developed it a bit and worked through some biblical passages and then got Q&A and thought a bit more about it. And eventually I wrote to my publisher in London and said, you know what, I I'm finding that people need to hear certain things which they're not hearing elsewhere. Maybe this is a little book. And he said, well, write it quickly and see what will happen. Because I was actually working on another project at the time, so I had to steal a few days out from that, which I did. And so then I sent it to various friends, the kind of friends I always use as sounding boards, and they said, oh, you missed out this bit about that, or you should say more about the other. So that was quite a quick process, uh, really over Easter time this year. And the funny thing was, we all thought at that stage that the pandemic would be over by, say, June, and that we'd be back to life as normal. So the publishers put a subtitle uh, on the book, which was A Christian Reflection on the Coronavirus and Its Aftermath, in case by the time the book came out, we were into the aftermath. We none of us thought that the thing would still be raging and that we'd have a second spike now in October um, or November, wherever we nearly are now. Um, so so that's, that's how it happened. And particularly, I wanted to give a bigger and richer biblical picture than I think people were getting um, uh, from other sources. Now, historically, we seem to see Christians on the front line of suffering. And so when we talk about a pandemic, when we talk about a lot of things that are going on in our world right now, I think when we look towards the front, we should see followers of Christ. Now, I'm not positive, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not positive that we see that as much anymore in our current reality. Would you uh, agree with that, or do you see it differently? Yeah, I mean, it depends where you look. Um, th there are many, many followers of Jesus in the world today who are absolutely on the front line and in the firing line. I mean, I'm in regular touch with 
a friend and colleague in Tehran, the capital of Iran, who is the pastor of a small and struggling church in Tehran. And he is a, a married man with a, with a child. And uh, because of the situation in Iran, particularly because of Western sanctions against the government, there's all sorts of things which are really difficult. He can't get books. Um, they, if they need medication, they can't guarantee getting that, etc., etc. But there is the insidious pressure on the struggling little churches because, of course, in a fiercely Islamic context, it's not an easy thing to be a Christian. Um, and he actually translates my books into Farsi, bless him, for the dispersed Iranian Christian community. Um, and when I uh, get emails from him, and he's a brave and wise man, he talks about what's going on. He talks about it quite calmly, but I sense that there's stuff he, he dared put in an email because his emails may be being read. And, and I just think, and this is what Christianity is really like and has been for most Christians most of history. Um, or, or take the many Christians in other parts of the Middle East who find um, that the West seems to have ignored them and, and that they, they are really suffering. You know, the, there are Armenian Christian communities that are in, in desperate straits right now, as they have been again and again over the last hundred or more years. Uh, and so we could go on around the world. And uh, uh, when I was at the Lambeth Conference 12 years ago, I remember um, uh, a rather shy, quiet, rather small um, African man coming up and standing beside me in the lunch queue and saying, thank you for praying for me. And I said, sorry, I don't think we've met. And he said, no, we haven't, but I am the Bishop of Darfur. And I thought, oh, my goodness, yes, we have been praying for you and your people. You have been absolutely on the front line in that part of Africa. Um, and so many of them, when you get to know them, that's the story that they have to tell. So we in the West have, as it were, created a bubble where we can do something which we call Christianity, but appears for much of the time to be cost free because we've done deals with the secular society where they will do all the things that really matter um, to them and we will do the praying and taking people to heaven bit. And, and the Western society is perfectly happy about that. We're not disturbing um, them at all. They can follow their agendas. And until we get back to the full gospel of the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven, then I think we are quietly being sidelined. And that's a real problem. It's a problem for me. I don't want to suffer. I don't want my family to suffer. I enjoy my creature comforts as a, as a, uh, a relatively well-off Westerner. Um, so but that's the challenge that I find in the New Testament itself. Now, the general narrative of the book really hinges on two themes of the Old Testament. And I guess we could call them narratives, two narratives of the Old Testament. And then they come together in the person of Jesus Christ, and they have everything to do with what we're currently going through in our world right now. Do you mind just expanding on that a little bit? That was one of the exciting things that I realized as I was sketching this out, because obviously, if you read only Deuteronomy and Amos and Psalm 1 and various other passages, you'd think that life is quite straightforward. Good people have good things happen to them and bad people have bad things happen to them. So that if you see somebody who is prospering financially, etc., it must be that they're good people. And likewise, if somebody is having a miserable time, oh, they must have sinned somewhere. It doesn't take long reading through the Bible before you hit this book called Job, or indeed some of the other Psalms, like Psalm 44, where it's obvious that here are people who by definition are good, righteous, upstanding, law-abiding people, and horribly bad things happen to them. 
And the Bible wrestles with that question. And then as I stood back from that and thought, you've got these two great strands. And, you know, when you get the gospel story with Jesus in the middle of it and Jesus going to his death, from one point of view, Jesus is constantly saying to his contemporaries, you have rebelled against God, and if you're not careful, your city, Jerusalem, is going to be destroyed. And the great warnings on Jerusalem, which is a kind of a Deuteronomic strand, you've done badly, and this is what's going to result. And then in general, that the human race has done badly, and that the human race needs to suffer the punishment in, in accordance. But then at the same time, Jesus himself is the archetypal innocent sufferer. Jesus is the book of Job in person. Jesus is the man of Psalm 44. He says, my God, why did you abandon me? That's Psalm 22, but the same thing applies. Um, and so it's only when we get Jesus in the middle of the picture that we can draw on the Old Testament wisely. And just to grab a verse or two here and there otherwise simply doesn't cut it. And so then the early Christians, fascinatingly, when they want to talk about what's going on in their world, they don't try and interpret this or that or the other as a sign of the end. They simply talk about Jesus because it's all there. And if you add to the message about Jesus, you actually take away from it. So that's really the, message, the central message of the book. Now, in the story of Jesus, there's this point where he hears his friend Lazarus is sick. And he goes to him, and ultimately, most of us know how the story ends, he raises him from the dead. But before he does that, he stands there and it says that he wept. And that's something I've never really understood why that would be. If he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, why would he stand there weeping? And you address this in your book related to the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fascinating moment. And John 11 is full. I mean, the, the whole of John's gospel is full of fascinating stuff. But this is one of the richest moments. And John, like many good writers, doesn't tell you everything all the time. He doesn't explain what's going on in Jesus' mind. He leaves us to infer that. And the way the story works, you might think that Jesus would stride into Bethany and say, it's all going to be all right. We'll sort this one. Um, don't worry. Um, but he waits and he allows Mary and Martha to come and say, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And as they weep, so he weeps. And only then, in the light of that, does he go to the tomb and do what has to be done. And it's almost as though Jesus is there pre-enacting his own death and resurrection. And I think there's, there's a bit of that going on in the story, that Jesus knows that death is a horrible, ghastly thing. He knows it's very powerful. And Jesus himself knows that if he's going to go and face it, this is the most supreme, crazy act of faith you can imagine. And he's overwhelmed by it. And here is, this is what death actually means. It means weeping siblings. It means the whole village in mourning. And part of the point of the story of the gospel is that Jesus comes to share and bear the pain and grief of the world. He doesn't simply come to sweep it all out of the way and say, there we are, we will solve that one in no time. Um, and it's only because he's sharing and bearing the suffering and the sorrow that he can then bring healing, in this case, actual raising Lazarus from the dead. And I find that very profound as also quite mysterious. And it tells me something about 
about what it meant to be God incarnate. Uh, we use the phrase God incarnate or second person of Trinity or whatever, and often we do that with a sort of classical theological frame in mind according to which um, uh, God is upstairs, does everything, um, uh, sorts everything out, uh, and is himself untouched by the misery and sorrow of the world. And, and that's clearly not the case in John's Gospel. This is the word made flesh, weeping at the tomb of his friend. That, I think, is enormously powerful and profound. That's some incredible perspective. And honestly, I've never heard anything like that before in talking about that passage. I've never read anything like that before. That certainly gives us all a lot to ponder and think about. Now, when we're talking about the pandemic, there's a million ways we could go on this conversation. But in discussing the pandemic, one of the most important things, I think, as Christ followers, as people who call ourselves Christians, is to ask the question, what can we do? Because I know a lot of us just feel really helpless in the midst of this. What can we possibly do when there's this virus that's attacking our world? And you draw some wisdom in your book from the book of Acts, I believe it's chapter 11. I, I was fascinated by that little snippet, really. The end of Acts 11, um, we got a picture of the church in Antioch, which is a, a vibrant, multicultural, multicolored uh, community because Antioch was a melting point pot and people came from east and west and north and south. That was one of the great crossroads of the ancient Near East. And uh, there was the church and it had people of every sort and they were celebrating, etc. And one day a prophet stands up and says, there's going to be a famine. God has told me there's going to be a famine covering the whole region. Now, if the church in Antioch had been thinking like many people in the church in America or Britain, they might at once have said, oh, this is a sign that Jesus is about to come back. They didn't say that. Or they might have said, this is a sign that God is very cross with either us or our society or something. They didn't say that either. They simply said, who is going to be really at risk when this comes upon us? What can we do to help? And who shall we send? And so they send Paul and Barnabas and Titus to Jerusalem with financial help because the Jerusalem church are suffering. They sold all their possessions 20 years earlier and uh, 15 years earlier, whenever it was, in order to look after one another. But they are being persecuted by the uh, Jewish people who are not following Jesus. And it's a very difficult situation. And it's a fascinating moment because it's a practical response to the immediate crisis rather than a complicated theological analysis, which would just mean sitting back and waiting for whatever God's going to do. No, they know that by God's spirit living within them, they have to be Jesus followers in this situation, what would Jesus do? He would go and feed the hungry. That's pretty darn clear. So that's what they do. And that sets a pattern for the church from that day to this. Um, and the church at its best has always known that it's there to see where the needs are in the world and to go and meet them. That's part of what it means to believe in the coming kingdom of God. Professor Wright, could you put that in some, some modern terms for us? Again, directly related to the, what we're going through right now. Uh, well, I think, and, and I've been quite moved to see this, that there are many, many churches where they are giving a lead. I mean, there are many churches in my country which for years have been doing food banks to help 
people who are either unemployed or poor for whatever reason. Um, and uh, uh, I think the government knows this, actually, that if all the churches withdrew what they're doing, our government would face a major social crisis with plenty of poor people quite literally starving. But the churches have upped their game on that and have done all sorts of things and have found out where the needs are in particular corners of cities and towns. No doubt there's much more we could do. No doubt there are some Christians who say, no, no, that's social work. We, we just do the gospel. We don't do that, um, which, as you would understand, I would think is a complete nonsense. It's not an either or. And the good news is God is becoming king on earth as in heaven. Okay, not all yet. We wait for Jesus to return to complete the job. But while that's happening, thank God the churches are very active. And likewise, with hospital and hospice work, one of the things that I found really encouraging was when I discovered by accident that the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, my country's premier so-called religious leader, has been quietly putting on protective equipment and going around the corner to the big hospital down the road uh, and helping out as an assistant extra volunteer chaplain, ministering to the sick and the dying, and also ministering to the, um, the, the, the medics, the care teams themselves, who are in desperate straits sometimes. That's leading leadership from the front. And, and, and in, in so many ways, those are the sorts of equivalents for what the church did in Acts chapter 11. A lot of us are shocked, I would say, disheartened, I would say, by the way that this worldwide pandemic, the coronavirus, has become politicized. It seems crazy that that's where we're at today. I think it's also really discouraging how much division this has created in our world, how much finger pointing has been going on, how much blaming is happening, which seems crazy when I say it out loud. And we know that Jesus stands for unity. So when we see division, there's a problem. So I guess I'll ask you, Professor Wright, are people to blame for this virus? Should we be blaming God for this virus? How do we look at this? Ultimately, that is part of the bigger question of why creation is still groaning in travel the way it is. I mean, it's a fascinating thing that it's only really since the 18th century that people have, within the so-called Christian world, have asked the question that way round, what's, what's gone wrong? Um, as though we all knew that God was in charge and nothing bad should ever happen to us. I recall in the early church, they knew about volcanoes and earthquakes and pandemics and, and, and accidents and, and so on. All sorts of bad things happened often to good people all the time, and they got on and ministered help and healing and comfort as best they could. And that was normal for the church for 1,500 years. It's only really, as I say, in the last... 300 years or so, and I think it's with the rise of deism in uh, Britain and Germany and America that people have Im imagined God as a celestial chief executive officer whose job it is to press the right buttons and make sure that nothing too bad happens to anyone. And I want to say, dream on, the world has never been like that. And Christian theology has never tried to address the question like that. Um, and so we, we need to address these modern questions by deconstructing some of the presuppositions, because in the Bible, the God of the Bible is very much involved and active with the world. He's not sitting outside it, um, calling the shots or, or turning it into a puppet theater. And ultimately, for the Christian, it's only when we look at Jesus, Jesus getting his hands dirty, Jesus down in the dust, writing on the floor and so on. That's when we discover what 
God incarnate looks like, uh, rather than a God who is, as I say, calling the shots from upstairs somewhere. Um, so, so then when we find Jesus in John 9, where the disciples say, whose fault was it that this man was born blind? Jesus says, it's the wrong question. This has happened so that God's works God's glory may be manifest in him. That's what we ought to be saying. What will glorify God granted this situation? What can we do that will bring God glory in this in this moment? Such incredible perspective, such profound wisdom. I cannot thank N.T. Wright enough for being on the podcast this week to help us sort through this because I know we're all thinking about it, so it's so important that we try to sort through it. We just scratched the surface today, so I really encourage everyone that's listening to go out and pick up N.T. Wright's book, God and the Pandemic. I'll put a direct link in the show notes of this episode so you can grab it there. Something else I want to draw your attention to is N.T. Wright Online. This is one of the foremost scholars in the New Testament that is alive today, and you can learn directly from him by going to N.T. Wright Online. Again, I'll put a link to that directly in the show notes. And we're not done because Professor Wright just put out a brand new book called Broken Signpost. It's incredible. I can't tell you how wonderful this book is, and we are going to talk about it next week. It's all about making sense of our current world through the lens of Christianity. You are not going to want to miss it. More N.T. Wright coming up next week. Of course, if you want to support this show, a couple things. Just subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five-star rating and write a review. Until next time, keep walking.